Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 232A of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about your mysterious feedback on some of our recent episodes. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So let's get started right off the bat with some more general feedback. And our first bit of feedback comes from Olivia Lovett via email, who writes, I was really excited to see the new Doctor Strange 2 movie. However, I heard that there was some questionable content in there as far as following the Catholic faith. One, there's said to be a sexually immoral character in there. Is it wrong to watch this as a Catholic or even to say, I don't support this? but then give the creators money by buying a movie ticket? And if this is wrong to see, how is it different from being acceptable to watch, say, a movie that uses the Lord's name in vain, etc.? Two, I also heard that there was some witchy stuff in there, obviously because of Wanda. So is this level of magic that they speak of in the movie wrong and should not be seen? And if so, how is this different from Harry Potter magic? Or is there a difference? I really do like all the Marvel movies. I'm a complete nerd, but I don't want to put my faith on the line because of it. Jimmy? Well, you shouldn't put your faith on the line. Um, but, you know, you if you're secure in your faith and you can exercise critical thinking, then um, you can sort the wheat from the chaff. You know, you don't uh, have to run away from something just because it has problematic moral content in it. I mean, even the Bible depicts people doing morally problematic things, and we don't want to run away from the Bible. So we don't need to be super scrupulous about this. We don't want to be super scrupy. Now, when it turns to, uh, when it comes to Doctor Strange, I'm afraid I haven't seen Doctor Strange 2. In fact, I haven't even seen Doctor Strange 1. Uh, so I can't comment about the specifics of that movie. I can only lay out general principles. But as I said, um, you don't have to approve of something to be able to watch it or read it or anything like that. Um, you are dealing with a situation where the creators of, of, of a form of media, just like people in general, are flawed people. But, you know, as St. Paul indicates, we if if we refuse to utterly associate with immoral people, we would have to leave the world and we can't do that. So it's a matter of, you know, looking at a particular situation and saying, is this so bad that I shouldn't have anything to do with it? Well, if if something were to endanger your faith, then that would be bad enough. You should avoid it. On the other hand, if you don't approve of it um, and it's a relatively small part of something so that it doesn't ruin your enjoyment of the overall experience, then you could consume that media. Um, and it doesn't matter whether the uh, problematic content is uh, of a moral nature or whether it's, uh, you mentioned like witchy stuff. Now, I don't know about Wanda the Scarlet Witch in the movies and TV shows, 
But in the comics, Wanda is not a real witch, at least not in the standard um, interpretation down through the years. She's a mutant, and instead of having actual magic, her so-called magical abilities are probability manipulation. So she has an ability based on her genetic code to... um, to manipulate probabilities so that unlikely things happen and that gets interpreted as magic but it's really probability manipulation so at least in the mainstream account in the comics it's certainly the way the character started it's not even real magic in the marvel universe it's just something that has a kind of magical effect um but even if it was real magic it's fantasy magic this is not real world magic people wanda and others are not really worshiping you know um pagan gods or things like that they're not it it, it i mean the hoary hosts of hogoth are not real so you you i this is all just fantasy stuff and as long as you recognize this is pretend this is not real it is not a threat to the faith so don't be super scoopy. Excellent. Very good. Uh, then the next one comes from Michael Brown via email, and he writes, I recently found this show, and I love it. I would love to hear Jimmy's take on the amateur archaeologist Ron Wyatt, who claimed to have found Noah's Ark, chariot wheels at the bottom of the Red Sea, the Ark of the Covenant in a cave underneath the crucifixion site of Jesus, and many other biblically-related discoveries. So I haven't studied uh, Ron Wyatt in detail, at least not at this point, but there's a whole class of, I'm trying to think of a charitable way to say it. The first word that occurred to me is bottom feeder, but I'll <laughs> be more charitable than that. And so I'll say lesser, low quality biblical archaeologists who are not taken seriously in the scholarly community and who very frequently make exaggerated and possibly at times even fabricated claims. So um, I'm, I'm familiar with the kind of stuff that gets promoted in this area, and it should not be taken seriously. Very good. Our next set of feedback comes from our episode number 207 on Arts Parts. In Rob Leonardi wrote on Facebook, in reference to the T-Rex info, I recently heard that it could be possible that their arms were put on backwards and that they are actually wings like an ostrich or emu or that they were only used during mating. Yeah. So the subject of what T-Rexes did with their tiny little comical arms is um, is a a live subject in paleontology. Um, I plan on having a future episode on T-Rexes where we're going to look at the scientific issues and we'll be looking at the different theories about their arms. But I I do personally just, I find attractive the theory that we mentioned on the show, which is that uh, they evolved to be small so that their friends wouldn't bite them off during (laughs) feeding frenzies. (laughs) All of those are fun uh, possibilities. Uh, Ryan Cruz writes on Facebook, nope, aliens have super tech to travel thousands of light years, but are worse than us at flying across the sky. It is very for very rare for us to crash. Why would aliens constantly fail at flying? Also, I don't think they would be reckless and be ditching their tech in our backyard. Oh, well, I understand the skepticism. In the episode itself, <laughs> I dealt with that issue. I tried to say I, I expressed my own skepticism about would we really expect the number of crashes that get reported? 
And I listed some theories that could try to explain that. But personally, I'm I'm certainly skeptical of the number of crashes that are reported, though I can't rule out the possibility that there might be a few crashes or other jettisonings of material that could be studied. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then Tony Merritt via email writes, I was left a little perplexed at the magnesium bismuth alloy since the previous episode on the Roswell crash convinced me that it was actually one of the long one of the lost project mogul balloons. I work in a steel foundry and we use a lot of alloys added to the molten steel at different temperatures to create the different types of steel. So that got me thinking that maybe the samples were some type of industrial byproduct and not made intentionally. I did a Wikipedia search on the Betterton Kroll process to refine lead, and it verifies that it is likely that this process could produce a layered magnesium bismuth alloy, especially if the magnesium is reused. Well, thank you very much. That's that's great to hear from someone who does work in this area, and that's fascinating information. I think one of the um, relevant factors would be whether or not the claims regarding some of these materials, like having microscale waveform guides on them, would be uh, accurate. Because if that's true, that they have structures on them that look like they're designed to to guide very, very small waveforms, um, like in the terahertz range we were talking about. That sounds like in, like conscious design of something that goes beyond what present technology is. You wouldn't expect that to happen from like a random alignment of, uh, of layers uh, in an industrial process that's not designed to produce that. So um, I think that would be a relevant factor here. Uh, Then Joseph Regan writes via YouTube, personally, I think that if there are any UFOs not from shady government programs, that they came from a subterranean race. I don't believe in hollow earth, but I do think there could be some hyper deep cave systems where a group of humans migrated into and then over time developed their own underground civilization. This would also explain some of the anatomy of the so-called greys, large eyes, pale skin, etc., could be expected of a race that lived in darkness for a long time before discovering geothermal energy. This can also explain why we don't see alien stuff in space, despite having various pieces of evidence of something going on on Earth. So the theory that you're advocating here is known as the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis. Kryptos, or kryptos in Greek means hidden, and so crypto-terrestrials would be hidden terrestrials. Uh, We will be having an episode on the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis in the future, as well as on the hollow earth uh, theory in the future. Um, The most, if you want to do some reading before then, uh, you should check out the work of a gentleman named Mac Tonnies, M-A-C-T-O-N-N-I-E-S. He's the most, he's passed on, in fact, he he passed on at a remarkably young age, but um, He's the most recent major advocate of the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis, and it not only could be used to explain the appearance of gray aliens, you know, with the big eyes and the pale skin, but also another group of aliens that's been reported since the 50s, which are the so-called Nordics, that look like very—they look more like regular humans, and they have hair and everything and normal-sized eyes, but they look like they're 
Swedish. You know, they tend to be blonde and they are tall and things like and pale skinned, but not ghostly pale. Um, and they also have been uh, suggested as possible crypto terrestrials. Awesome space Vikings. <laughs> so our next feedback comes from our episode 208 on time travel prayer. Uh, patron Guy Napier on Patreon writes, I'm stumped. If God cannot change the past and yet our prayers can affect past people and events because God knows those future prayers at the time of the past event, doesn't that suggest all things are predestined instantaneously at the time of creation? Or there is an infinite number of alternate timelines and alternate universes? No, it actually wouldn't suggest either one of those things. Um, it would suggest that God makes all of history all at once in a single moment, which is, you know, from his perspective, no time is passing because he's outside of time. So it's kind of like he gets a big bucket of history and just splat, throws it against a wall. But that doesn't mean he is individually fixing everything that happens in that history. If he gives us free will, then when he does the big splat, we get to choose our own actions. And so it wouldn't um, it wouldn't result in everything being predestined in the sense of God makes all the choices. Um, when it comes to time travel prayer, God, and this is a this is a somewhat subtle distinction, so you want to think about this carefully, but and we we covered it to some extent in the in the episode itself, so you may want to go back and listen to that. But God is affecting the past. He's not changing the past. Because all from his timeless perspective, all times are equally present and equally real to God. And so the situation of, of God affecting the past when we pray is exactly like the situation of God affecting the future when we pray or affecting the present when we pray. Uh, God, like, so say, I, say I'm praying about something right now. I want God, someone to heal somebody. Um, and God does heal them. Okay, so in that case, God is affecting the present. He heals this person, but he isn't changing the present in the sense that the present originally played out one way, and now he's intervening and making it play out a different way. He, it would have played out a different way if he didn't heal the person, but he didn't change it. He didn't overwrite a timeline. Uh, he just affected the one timeline that, that we know exists. Um, when it and the same thing is true uh, when we pray about the future, you know, he doesn't overwrite the future that happened before he overwrote it. He just affects the future. And in the same way, he would just be affecting the past. And so um, when he also incorporates free will into uh, the free will decisions of people into his plan, um, that that doesn't affect the existence of free will. It's something he's able to do, just like we incorporate the free will of others into our plans. So we we don't have a fatalistic situation where people don't have free will, and it doesn't require a multiplicity of timelines. Now, God could make a multiplicity of timelines. He could have a kind of branching, diverging timeline thing, but we don't have evidence of that scientifically or um, on other grounds, as far as I'm aware. And so um, all of this is consistent with having a single timeline where God <coughs> affects the different portions of the timeline based on our prayers, but it, it doesn't 
result in fatalism or a multiverse, although multiverses could exist. Excellent. Then next is Rob Leonardi, who wrote on Facebook, in terms of praying for something in the past, this seems kind of like a Schrodinger's prayer scenario. We can pray until we know the result about that which we're praying. Until we do, our prayer is both effective and not effective, since it seems like we can only pray for something in the past if we don't know the result of it already. Once we know the result, then we ought not to pray for it because God already allowed it to happen. Yet our knowledge of said result does not change the outcome of it because either something happened or it didn't. Well, I understand that way of looking at it, but I wouldn't personally look at it that way. Um, As I said, our prayer affects but does not change what happened. And even though you might not care to pray for something where you know the outcome, as long as you're not contradicting the outcome, you're not doing anything fundamentally wrong. Um, For example, we know that on 9-11, some people died when the when the Twin Towers collapsed. And I I think it would be foolish to pray that in our timeline, you could always pray for other timelines if they exist, but for our timeline, it would be foolish and mistaken to pray that nobody dies, that everybody survives on that day. But um, some people did survive, and you could pray for that. You could say, God, please... Please help the people who you would have survive on nine, back on 9-11. Please have, have them be as many people as possible. You could pray for things like that. And even though you knew aspects of what happened, like some people did survive. I mean, let's, let's suppose you knew one particular person. Let's call him Bob Smith. Uh, you know Bob Smith got out of the towers. You could hypothetically pray oh, Lord, please help Bob Smith get out of the towers, or even please let Bob Smith get out of the towers. Now, you know that prayer is going to be answered positively because you already know that Bob Smith escaped alive, but that doesn't stop you from praying it. Um, You're not contradicting God's will by making that prayer because you know it was God's will that Bob Smith survived. Um, Now, you could question, is that a worthwhile thing to do? You know, should you be praying for something else, something you don't know the outcome about? And and that's possible, but it's not, it's not a moral slam dunk that you should not do that. You're praying in accordance with God's will in that case, and that is not intrinsically wrong. In fact, I think even, C- if my memory serves, even C.S. Lewis, in, um, in his discussion of this, uh, talked about how he could pray for things that he knows did happen. Um, whether you want to do that is up to you, and whether or um, whether or not you, your prayer time would be spent, would be better spent on something else, that's a judgment call. But I don't see it as being intrinsically wrong. The thing I would not pray for is something where I know it was God's will not to do something. <laughs> Very good. All right. Uh, The next one comes from Brent Lynn via email, who writes, I wondered about the scientific experiment on the efficacy of prayer. While I understand the doctor involved only had the best of intentions in performing the experiment, I wonder if it's best to perform an experiment where one group is prayed for and another is not. It almost feels like there is a dehumanizing aspect 
and making ill people into a group who purposely do not receive prayers. Personally, I couldn't participate in conducting such an experiment. Faced with the reality of two groups who need prayers, I'd find myself wanting to pray for them all. But I'm not a scientist. Am I misunderstanding something in my interpretation? Did the control group receive prayers after the experiment was conducted? So in this case, no, the control group did not receive prayers after the experiment was conducted, at least according to the, the paper as it was written. Um, you're, you're pointing to something that is a concern in scientific research and in medical research in particular, because um, uh, double-blind randomized trials like this are considered the gold standard for, for research and establishing, you know, does this thing we're testing really have an effect or not? But um, it is the exact same problem faces non-religious scientists or ones who aren't researching prayer, because here we have something that we suspect may be, let's say it's a cancer treatment. We have something we have reason to suspect this may help people with cancer. But in order to prove that, they need to give it to only half of the people they have to study. And that creates ethical squeamishness. If, if we think this might help people, why aren't we giving it to them all? Well, because you wouldn't end up having proof then about whether it helps or hurts or does something else. And so uh, it's a concern that uh, that people have in a purely secular context as well. But it also applies to uh, to prayer research and distant healing research. There are um, in parapsychology, there are studies that are periodically done on prayer or other forms of or what's called distant healing. And a lot of the practitioners, either the prayer practitioners or the distant healing practitioners that the researchers go to say, I'm sorry, I can't do this study for you. I can't just pray for half of these people, or I can't just try to heal half of these people. I, 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 if the way it works, I need to do it for everybody. And so um, it is a concern that gets raised both in secular science and in specifically in prayer-related studies. Then our next question comes from Christopher Durham right via email. In light of prayers being applied to those in the past or future, I can see how some people may use this possibility as a justification for certain religious practices that may try to affect people in the past or afterlife or in the future, such as cursing offspring to the nth generation or the Mormon practice of baptism of the dead. Well, um, so retrocausal prayer or, you know, praying for things in the past wouldn't, doesn't really interact with things like Mormon proxy baptism or curses, at least not in a way I'm seeing, because Mormon proxy baptism says, okay, there's this person who did live and they're dead, so they're in the afterlife now, so I'm going to get baptized as their proxy now, and it will affect them in the afterlife now and going forward. We're not reaching back in time, with a Mormon would say, with proxy baptism and somehow making them baptized back when they were still alive. We're just applying the benefits of baptism to their soul now and then going forward. And curses are kind of the flip side of that. Um, when you curse someone, you're not typically, I mean, Actually, you could do this. You could say, oh, God, please thwart Adolf Hitler and give him incurable toenail itching or, you know, something. 
uh, and that God could apply to him back in, say, 1939. Um, that would be a retroactive curse. But that is not the way most curses work. Most curses are like, I hereby curse you to get incurable, agonizing toenail itch from henceforth going forward and, and all your descendants. And so most curses are, are forward-looking, at least historically, although you could try to, based on the principles of retroactive prayer, you, you could try to curse someone retroactively, and then it would be up to God whether or not to do that. Um, but there, you know, people could, though, use uh, retroactive prayer to try to do bad things, you know, malicious things. But, uh, but I don't see it in the case of the way Mormon proxy baptism or curses are ordinarily held to work. All right. Our next one comes from Roseanne McManus via email, who writes, as someone who conducts statistical and experimental research myself, I wanted to learn more about the research design and results. I was disappointed to see that the effect was very small, even for the significant results. The median, which I was taught is the best metric for comparison, was identical in one case and very similar in the other. The statistical significance, therefore, appears to be driven by high outliers and the results driven by outliers are often dismissed. I was therefore surprised that this was published in a prominent medical journal, so I googled and discovered that this article is intended to be a joke. Apparently, the British Medical Journal publishes a joke issue every Christmas. This is not a joke in the sense of the onion. The data are real, and two results are statistically significant. However, I doubt that the results are strong enough to have been published in a non-joke issue. The fact that neither the editors of the journal nor the author of the article believe this study was really showing the power of prayer is important context for these findings. As the articles I have linked to point out, publishing joke articles in a real medical journal is a really bad idea because there is no obvious way to know it is a joke unless you are aware of the tradition. Also, I'm convinced by your logic that praying for things in the past is possible even in the absence of extremely compelling scientific evidence. So I, 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 I am sensitive to your concern, um, irrespective of whether the authors or editors meant the study as a joke or simply a lighthearted look at the subject. Um, you know, joke can be kind of harsh, like they don't think there's anything here. But as you say, the data is real. Um, and so even if the effect wasn't strong enough, to be published in an issue that wasn't lighthearted. It's something that still needs, that's still true. The data is real and needs to be taken seriously. This wasn't a made-up story. It wasn't a fiction. The study really happened and it really showed these results. Also, this isn't the only study that we have along these lines. There are other studies of prayer and distant healing that show statistically significant results and that are published at other times of the year. Uh, in fact, there have even been meta-analyses that have shown um, statistically significant results in these studies. So it's a real area of research, but you're correct that the uh, December issue or the Christmas issue of the um, of this particular medical journal does tend to be lighthearted, and that may have given the author permission to publish something that where the data is real but not strong enough to merit publication at another time of year for that journal. Tony L. writes on YouTube, this concept is already familiar to me, probably because I read, I read C.S. Lewis's book, Miracles, too, 
my favorite of his, I think. I've also wondered if this same concept applied to church authority in popes and councils. Did God know that future popes and councils would make certain judgments and not merely take that into account, but actually make it so, so that they could and would indeed be infallible when exercising that charism? The Marian dogmas come to mind especially. Also, isn't the Immaculate Conception a similar and an explicit example of a future action slash intercession, Christ's redemption, being applied retroactively to Mary? That seems to be the clear language of the decree. Seems surprising that this public revelation was not mentioned in relation to this topic. So the mechanisms by which God guides uh, popes and councils haven't really been disclosed to us, so I can't comment too much on that. Um, When it comes to the Immaculate Conception, it was something that God did for Mary in view of the foreseen merits of Christ. And it doesn't specifically require any kind of—I mean, it doesn't fit exactly into the kind of retrocausal model that we were talking about. I mean, it does in a way, but we can do human analogies, and I think this is one of the reasons that people don't tend to think of the Immaculate Conception in such a strictly retrocausal way, because we can know, even in this life, with a high degree of probability— what someone is going to be able to do in the future. That's why we give, that's why banks give housing loans because they can foresee, okay, this person has a good job. They they have built up enough money for a down payment. So that shows a track record of them being able to make money. And so we foresee their future earnings, their future financial merits, and we loan them the money to buy a house now. And then they pay it off later. And that's essentially what what happened with the Immaculate Conception. God foresaw, and because he's outside of time, he directly sees Jesus on the cross meriting um, the salvation of all and perfection of all mankind. And so he applies that to Mary early in order to make her a more fitting mother for his son. Um, that is a retrocausal effect uh, given God's timelessness, but uh, or it is a it is a par it is a an effect not simply bounded by the ordinary flow of time i guess i should, might want to say it that way um but i didn't i didn't mention it in the episode because it didn't involve prayer and so the episode was about retrocausal prayer and this wasn't prayer though you can look at it as a retrocausal effect <laughs> The next uh, feedback comes from Jude Peterson on YouTube, who writes, You said that an imprimatur is a guarantee that a book does not contain heresy. Isn't it just a guarantee that the bishop who gave it did not find any heresy, but that it could still potentially contain missed heresy or material heresy based on future definitions, but no heresy at the time of the imprimatur? So an imprimatur is a human guarantee that a book does not contain heresy. And it's actually a little weaker than, or at least frequently, it's a little weaker than the bishop didn't find any heresy, because normally what happens is the bishop doesn't even read the work himself. He he uh, he gives it to a person known as a censor to read, and the censor, who is supposed to be an expert, um, reads it very carefully and gives an initial approval, which is sometimes called a nihil obstat which is Latin for nothing obstructs, meaning nothing obstructs the publication of this work. And then the censor gives a report to the bishop saying, I didn't find any 
any problems with this that we need to deal with. I gave it the nihil obstat. And then the bishop gives it the imprimatur, which is Latin for let it be printed. And so really, it's not usually the bishop himself who does the study of the of the work looking for heresy. It's the censor. Um, imprimaturs are based on the current knowledge and legally on the judgment of the bishop, although practically on the judgment of the censor most of the time. And as a result, they can be mistaken, and they are sometimes retracted. Our next feedback comes from Caroline Correa on YouTube, who writes, If timelines branch, what would that mean for our souls? Do I exist in more than one timeline? If so, does the salvation status of my soul in one timeline affect the salvation status of my soul in another timeline? Do I have multiple souls? Or does my one soul simply exist in multiple timelines? What happens when we die? Are we judged according to all of our lives? Will one of my souls go to heaven and another to hell? Help me understand. Okay, so we're in a totally speculative area here because, as I said, um, I don't have evidence for branching timelines existing. But if they exist, so you have a timeline that contains people, including their souls, and the timeline branches, then presumably their souls would branch also. And then what one branch of a soul does would determine the salvation or damnation of that branch of the soul. Um, so let's suppose timeline, branching timelines are real, and, and I, I'm in a timeline as Jimmy Aiken, and then the timeline branches. So you have one branch of Jimmy Aiken that, let's say the branch point was the decision of, do I commit a mortal sin immediately before my death? Well, okay, in one branch, Jimmy chose not to commit a mortal sin right before his death, and so he goes to heaven. But in the other branch, um, Jimmy chose to commit a mortal sin right before his death, and since it's right before his death, he didn't have time to repent, and so that branch of Jimmy would go to hell. That's a very interesting um, model for the soul. It's something that has not traditionally been envisioned, but that's because people in the past did not have the concept of branching timelines. This is a new concept. And so if you think branching timelines do exist or might exist, that to me seems the most probable way of relating them to what we know about the soul, which is in whatever timeline you exist, it's your choices that, um, that affect your death, that determine your destiny. So if, if timelines branch, then your, and your choices branch, then presumably your soul and your destiny branches too. But like I said, that's all speculation. I'm not proposing that's real. It just seems to be that what would happen, likely happen if it was real. So our next grouping of feedback comes from episode 208.1, which was one of our mysterious feedback specials. Oh, dude, we're getting recursive feedback on the feedback. <laughs> it's feedback all the way down. So our first one comes from uh, patron Mitch Godfrey, who wrote on Patreon, I was listening to your mysterious feedback special and saw there was a big push for many listeners to get you to buy in more to demons being a more frequent cause than is likely the case. I also don't like the default to demons as well. God assigns an individual angel to watch over each one of us. But are there individual demons tasked by Satan to try to pull us individually away from God, such as in C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters? Well, it would be a matter of speculation. Uh, the truth is we have no revealed information about this topic. We 
We do have information that indicates we have guardian angels, but we do not have information that we have regularly assigned besetting demons. Uh, we might or we might not. Um, I wouldn't, one way or the other, I wouldn't recommend worrying about it because it's a question we cannot settle and it has no impact on the need to resist temptation. If whether there is a demon that's regularly been assigned to you to tempt you to sin or whether there's not, the thing to do is not to worry about it. Just resist the temptation. The next one comes from uh, Mir Solis on YouTube. Mir Solis. Mir, sorry. Like, <laughs> it's pronounced Frankenstein's and Mir uh, as yeah. uh, the pronunciation. Mir Solis on YouTube. Who writes, is it necessary to conflate living things with organic things, as Jimmy seems to do in the discussion of souls and androids? Um, no, it's not necessary to conflate living things with organic things or to assume that all living things are organic things. When it comes to the soul, um, since the time of the Greek philosophers, the soul was understood at what makes, as what makes a body alive. Now, we know that um, the life here on Earth, at least, and there's been occasional questions about this, but at least so far as has been scientifically established, all of the life here on Earth is carbon-based, which means it's organic. That's what organic means, is based on carbon chemistry. Um, there are other chemistries that could theoretically support life. Probably the most famous of them is silicon based chemistry, because silicon occupies the same column in the periodic table as carbon, and as a result, it has many similar properties to carbon, because elements that are in the same column tend to have the same properties, because they have the same number of electrons on the outer shell of the atom, and that gives them similar chemical properties. So it's been proposed that silicon could uh, sustain a chemistry that would be capable of, of being living the same way uh, carbon does. There are challenges to that. Uh, it would have to happen at like temperatures and pressures where um, that would make it difficult because they are different elements. And, and for carbon, and we'll talk about this in a future episode on, on weird life possibilities, but, um, but like, it, it, my memory is that at the at the temperatures and pressures where you could get uh, silicon chemistry to work for life, it would be hard to have like liquid water wouldn't exist or wouldn't um, be usable by the life. And so you'd have to find some other substitute for liquid water uh, or things to that effect. Um, so, so no, I don't restrict life to carbon-based chemistries at all. I, I agree with Carl Sagan. Carbon-based chemistries are, are by far the most likely forms of life, but it is possible for there to be other chemistries as well. However, computers and AIs and androids aren't alive. Uh, they may, some of them may have silicon chips, at least at the moment, but they don't have silicon metabolism. And so um, they they don't appear to be alive. Our next feedback comes from Catherine Cox on YouTube, who writes, I also have aphantasia. I used to roll my eyes every time I was in a group setting and someone would say, imagine you are blank. I always associated the practice with crazy spiritualist types. I had no clue this was something people would could actually do until I heard your show. Wow, what a revelation. 
I realized that when I would try very hard to image something, I was only able to bring up one-dimensional, faded, almost imperceptible memories, not created imagination. On the flip side, I am extremely creative and am constantly designing interiors and gardens. Yeah, aphantasia does not uh, stop creativity, including visual creativity. It just needs to be externalized, uh, by, such as by drawing or making um, images. In fact, one of the big guys at Pixar, uh, which is you know famous for its computer animation, he's aphantasiac as well, but he uses this externalization to create images. He just doesn't automatically generate them in his head. And um, I'm glad that, uh, glad that the show was able to, to help you make this discovery. That's awesome. Um, incidentally, we now I don't have aphantasia as as I mentioned in the show. I have another condition known as synesthesia, where you associate different sensory modalities, and uh, some of that involves visualization. Like I sometimes visualize music, um, but we'll be talking about synesthesia in the future. So uh, look forward to that coming up. Our next grouping of feedback comes from episode number 209 on uh, p various patron questions. And the first feedback comes from John Henry via Discord, who writes, Jimmy mentions the alternate universe slash timeline theory in connection with the Mandela effect. But I've heard another creepier theory called quantum editing. The idea is that someone is editing the universe in such a way that it appears to change even historical records like old books and photographs. However, the one thing it can't change is our memories. So people still remember things like the news of Nelson Mandela's death and reading the Berenstein Beer Bears books. Yeah, um, so creepy, interesting theory. Um, I would want to know why, if this theory were true, why the editing doesn't affect our memories as well. You know, um, that would kind of be my first question. If this is true and the universe's history is being edited. My memories are part of that history, so why don't they change too? Next feedback comes from Tim Michael on Facebook, who writes, regarding the discussion of testing the machine elves, wouldn't asking them for information that would occur in the future be considered divination? Or perhaps is it that it is done for testing purposes rather than reliance purposes that makes it outside the realm of divination? So divination is uh, attempting to learn about the future through forbidden means. Um, Aquinas acknowledges that we can learn about the future through non-forbidden means, for example, precognitive dreams. Um, and in such cases, he says that this is not the sin of divination because this is not forbidden. Um, asking machine elves to give you verifiable information, whether about the future or about something else, because it didn't have to be about the future, is not a forbidden practice. Uh, also, as you say, it's for purposes of testing. I'm, it's not, I'm not really trying to get stock market tips or something like that. I'm just trying to find out, are these machine elves, can they give me veridical information, which would be a sign that they're real? Uh, it's not proof, but it would be a sign that they're real, as opposed to just a hallucination. And so it's really the testing question that's foremost and for both of those reasons, the fact this isn't forbidden and the fact that I'm uh, it, learning about the future is not really my purpose. Learning about the machine elves is my purpose. On both of those counts, it wouldn't be the sin of divination. Our next feedback comes from Wang Sejong, who writes, 
What about conjoined twins and souls? Do their souls share shared organs? Well, this involves speculation. Um, in the case of an organ that obviously belongs to one twin, then that twin soul would presumably apply. In ambiguous cases where it's not clear which which twin the organ belongs to, it would presumably belong to one of the twins, and that twin's soul would be running that organ. Or, it hypothetically, maybe both souls could contribute to the running of the organ, even if it belongs to one twin rather than the other. Just like if one twin has a heart, it can be driving the blood supply for both of them, even though the heart belongs to one of the twins. Um, we might have a hard time telling which twin an organ belongs to in a, in a difficult case, but presumably it would belong to one or the other. Nicholas Jagno on YouTube writes, Jimmy is human. I never thought I'd hear Jimmy say something in a dismissive way like, or whatever the monk equivalent of a novice is. It shows that despite his apparent Time Lord characteristics, he's fully human after all. Unless Jimmy's trying to pull a reverse psychology trick to make us think he's human because we're really onto him. Oh, it it wouldn't have to be a reverse psychology trick. Uh, time Lords are not omniscient. They don't know everything. And even the doctor runs across situations where he admits not knowing things. Let's see. Our next feedback comes from Rob Leonardi, who writes, in response to the twins question, if God puts two souls into an embryo, could that be the actual case cause of the split? As if the moment he put two souls in an embryo is the precise moment when it splits due to something like a soul capacity limit? Similarly, could God simply choose not to put a soul into an embryo and that be the cause for a miscarriage? Taking it a step further, would God choose not to put a soul into a baby he knows would be aborted? So this is a speculative area rather than a matter of church teaching. Um, but what the church does teach is that the intellectual soul is the form of the body. And therefore, whenever you have a living body, you should assume that it has one soul, because that's its form. Um, we therefore would not expect pre-division twins to have two souls, and we would not expect a living child that will miscarry in the future to have no soul. You got it, 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 Even if the child dies later, it's just like anybody else who dies later. If they're alive now, they got a soul. And so if you have a child that's going to miscarry, um, in the future, presumably the child has a soul right now while it's alive. The next feedback is from Alberto Alcina Ambrose via email, who writes, I'm a huge fan of your show from Spain. Ooh, I just, I wish we had like a, <laughs> a sound effect at that point, you know, like tapping <laughs> flamenco dancers, you know, <laughs> I am a fan of your show from Spain. Yeah, that's awesome. Cool. Now, next time we need to think of that. And in a, it is awesome. Also, uh, welcome, Alberto. And in a recent episode, Jimmy Aiken, speaking about how the words of Jesus about Judas, it had been better if he hadn't been born, meant that God himself said that it is better not to exist than to be in hell. Now, the ordinary argument for hell over annihilation after death is that existence is an absolute good and God does not deprive us of it, even if we turn from him. But that goes against the very words of Jesus, wouldn't it? So I may be misremembering or I may have misspoken. 
but I would be inclined to say that one way of taking Jesus's words would be that it would be better not to exist than to be in hell. Uh, however, whenever I discuss this topic, I regularly point out the same argument that you do, that one solution is that existence is a positive good that is not outweighed by being in hell. Uh, on that understanding, we would interpret Jesus's words to mean that it would be better for the one who betrays him not to have been born rather than not to exist. Uh, in this case, his betrayer would have miscarried, you know, not been born, and thus experienced the fate of miscarried children rather than the fate of the damned, which would be better to my mind. I would rather be a child who miscarried than a child who, than someone who grew up, betrayed the Son of God, and was damned as a result. Um, of course, all of that is assuming that Judas didn't repent, which Matthew actually says Judas did. So, like Benedict the Sixteenth, I consider Judas's fate unclear. All right. Our next feedback is some audio feedback, and I'll play that now. It's Guy Cappuccino here, longtime listener and patron, and I have some feedback on your episodes about the ghosts of Marin County. This is actually my first feedback ever. My wife and four kids and I love the show, and this episode is now my current favorite, surpassing even Summerton Man. I thought the episode started a little slowly with the Lloyd Auerbach interview, but then it really took off when he got to the subject matter of the episode. I learned a lot about the difference between apparitions and hauntings. And I think we actually have an auditory haunting in my house, which was built in 1924 and in which the owner died. Anyway, my feedback was this. If hauntings, place memories that is, could somehow be affected by the environment, like magnetic fields holding the information in a physical space, might this be another piece of evidence that information is actually a state of matter, like you mentioned in the serious headlines a few weeks ago? It makes sense to me. Thank you. Keep up the amazing work, and God bless you both. So, uh, well, thank you very much for the feedback. We already have evidence that information can be stored magnetically, such as on a magnetic cassette tape or a hard drive. Um, I wouldn't see that, though, as providing evidence that information itself is a state of matter any more than magnetic tapes do. Uh, the idea would be that hauntings are perhaps being stored magnetically on something, but that doesn't, just because I, I say, make a recording of my favorite song off the radio on a, on a cassette tape in the old day, that wouldn't prove that... Um, that information was a state of matter, just that information can be recorded magnetically. And I think the same thing would be true here. But uh, good creative thinking. And by the way, if you feel like it, feel free to let us know about the audio haunting in your house. And if you can capture it on audio, send us that too. Yes, please do. The next one comes from Mark, who writes, I had an issue with this episode. I think there is way too much interest in mediums and psychic activity. And I'm not sure Jimmy is holding the correct amount of skepticism. This episode, coupled with the very uncharitable criticism of Catholic priests who discuss exorcism, displeased me greatly. I understand for those who may be scrupulous and scared of demons unnecessarily, but when Catholic priests like Father Lampert and others who are doing their bishop's will receive harsher criticism than a man who openly consults mediums and occult practitioners, then I think that is where I'm going to move on and find other entertainment. God bless to you and Dom. Well, thank you, and God bless to you too, Mark. Uh, whether or not I have the correct amount of skepticism on any given mystery we cover is something that 
um, you know, people can reasonably disagree about. Um, I'm sure on some things I'm too skeptical. I'm sure on some things I'm not skeptical enough. You know, like everybody else, I'm I'm just human and I'm doing the best I can to apply critical thinking to these things. Um, I strive to be charitable uh, even when offering a critique. So I wouldn't consider all criticism uncharitable. You know, you said I uncharitably criticize people. Um, and and I think you can critique or criticize things in a charitable way, which is what I try to do. Um, there is no criticism and never has been any criticism of Father Lampert or any other individual exorcist. I, I have not studied Father Lampert. I would not be qualified to offer an opinion on Father Lampert, and therefore I don't. Um, what I have noted is that there's a general tendency among certain exorcists, especially ones who are in the public eye, to be somewhat sensationalistic. Exorcists also aren't perfect, you know, just like I'm not perfect. And um, so, you know, everybody can do with healthy, constructive critique or healthy, constructive criticism. Um, I'm One thing I'm not going to do in an episode where I'm interviewing someone is criticize a guest to their face. Um, that would be rude. I'm not going to invite someone on and then start. I, I may politely pose challenges to them, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to start criticizing them when they're a guest in my podcast, just like I wouldn't launch a personal attack on someone if they're a guest in my home. Um, we have looked at issues like mediums in previous episodes, and we'll continue to look at them in the future. Um, in such situations, you know, where I'm interviewing a guest and I'm not going to I'm not going to criticize them to their face, I rely on the audience to exercise their own critical thinking and remember and apply principles we've already talked about. But thank you for the feedback and God bless you, too. Our next feedback comes from a patron, Jonathan Fairchild on Patreon, who writes, my friend and I were discussing this episode, and we came up with an interesting idea. A while back, you discussed aphantasia. This episode, you discussed how hauntings could be explained by a person's self-image being encoded into a location due to some for form of, to some sort of natural feature of the environment. You also mentioned that a haunting may not necessarily be intentionally encoded, but could be based upon the mood or energy of the person or location. Many hauntings are only from the waist up because that's how we visualize ourselves. What if shadow people or silhouette ghosts, as in ghostly dark shapes that have no visual features, are just hauntings of people with aphantasia? Seeing as they have no visual impression of themselves, maybe their haunting would simply be a black silhouette. Pretty creepy to think about, but absolutely fascinating, too. What do you think of this theory? Oh, I think it's a really creative idea. It's very interesting. It's possible. Um, it's not certain, but I think it's an interesting thought. Uh, patron Michael O'Donnell writes, uh, here's a wild thought I just had. What if Bigfoot sightings are some kind of place memory of a creature no longer in existence, as described with the couple on the porch? Well, um, it could be now. So that's a that's an inter Again, it's an interesting possibility that should be taken seriously. Um, if it were the case that Bigfoot sightings were hauntings of a creature that no longer exists, um, we would still expect to find their bones. Um, now, at least if they lived recently. 
uh, we might not expect to find their bones if they lived a very, very distant in the past, like 60 million years ago, uh, because we're still digging up new species of creatures that old every year. So we don't have, we know we don't have all the species from back then. But if they were a recent one, we would expect to find their bones, just like we find the bones of other recent creatures. Um, also, another idea to consider, as long as we're taking a walk on the wild side here, um, Bigfoots could also be a distortion of human hauntings, where you're misperceiving a human haunting and it 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 looks like a Bigfoot. Um, and if they're hauntings, because one of the characteristics of hauntings is they repeat their behavior with little, if any, interactivity, you would expect to see the Bigfoots repeating their behaviors in the same location. Like you always see this Bigfoot walking down the same path in the forest, and that's all you ever see him do. He just keeps walking this path. Um, if you see more interactivity from Bigfoots, uh, that would be evidence against the idea that it's a haunting. Uh, we will continue to talk about Bigfoot in future episodes, including supernatural theories about Bigfoot. And so you can look forward to that. Uh, Rob writes on Facebook, I was disappointed that this episode didn't have a faith and reason perspective. I get that a lot of this stuff has been covered in past episodes, faith and reason segments, but it would have been nice to get some statement about all of the positive vibes talk with the cleansings. That sounds a bit new agey and the difference between going to psychics to clear a house instead of getting a house blessing or spe specific epiphany blessing done either by the head of the house or a priest or exorcist. So I'm still experimenting with how and when to include faith segments in episodes that involve interviews. Um, in some cases, there's an obvious way to do that that occurs to me right off the bat, like in episode 216, when I interviewed Kenny Biddle on his research into Robert Riggi. But in other episodes, it's, it's not as easy for me to see the best way to handle this topic. And so sometimes I may rely on uh, the listeners to apply the principles that we've talked about in previous episodes and do their own critical thinking. Um, I'm still thinking about and experimenting with the best way to do this. And so I thank you for your patience as I try to figure it out. Incidentally, um, also, you know, not everything can be included in an episode because they're often long enough as it is. But you mentioned like having a, um, having a an epiphany blessing or the head of the household or a priest or an exorcist doing a blessing on your home at, to clear it of um of of annoying influences and that's that's actually something that um that Lloyd would support um if if uh it, it would from a parapsychological perspective even if you don't believe in god it would still be an assertion of, okay, here's this new energy, here's this new determination, I want this stuff gone, and um, and if you do believe in God, it's even more than that. And so, um, so I'm, I haven't asked him the question specifically, but knowing his thought, I'm pretty sure Lloyd would say, yeah, if you're a religious person and you've got something uh, going on in your house that you don't like, um, like a haunting, uh, sure get a blessing from a priest or whatever. The next feedback comes from Jennifer Passarello on YouTube, who writes, 
I never miss an episode, have heard them all, but this has got to be my favorite one. Fascinating, especially the twist. I'd never heard of that happening. I learned so much on this episode. Question, I've seen ghost hunting shows on occasion, and what always annoys me is when they call out to the ghosts as if they were little kids in an effort to get them to show themselves. Does the gentleman in this interview ever do something similar to draw them out? I have missed, may have missed it if he talked about that. Yeah, so uh, so Lloyd Auerbach, the parapsychologist I was interviewing, is very critical of the way TV ghost hunting ghost hunters do things. Um, I've I've taken multiple courses with Lloyd, and one of the regular subjects is just all of the flaws that uh, that happen in TV ghost hunting shows. And he does not believe in being obnoxious to the spirits of the deceased. If if a spirit of a person is showing up at a place, you don't want to be rude to them any more than you would want to be rude to a living person that showed up at his place. So, no, he's not in favor of talking to ghosts like they're little kids and going, show yourselves and, you know, stuff like that. Our next set of uh, feedback comes from our episode 211 on Harriet Tubman. And the first one is some audio feedback. I just recently listened to your Mysterious World episode on Harriet Tubman and wanted to get your face and reason analysis on a theory that I've had about psychological, uh, supernatural things. And I have the theory that EFT or uh, psychic functioning is the way our souls communicate. And the reason that we can't do this in great detail is because we are currently sheltered by our bodies. And that's why the saints communicate through EFT and angels, and they do not have to speak to communicate. My prayers work. So I hope to hear it soon. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, so telepathy is understood as to be mind-to-mind communication. Regard, that's the effect, regardless of how it happens. Um, it is common among parapsychologists to assume that departed humans are communicating telepathically when they show up because they don't have physical speech organs. So even if they seem to be audibly talking to you, it's really telepathy. Uh, it's also assumed among theologians. And theologians, you know, uh, like Father Alois Weisinger, who we'll talk about in the future, I mean, this would fall right in line with his theories about how the soul works and and discarnate souls uh, having additional abilities that are freed up that are normally uh, confined in this life. Um, it's also assumed among theologians that this is how angels communicate with each other since they don't got physical organs at all, so they don't have anything physical to communicate with. And it is how how mental prayer works, since God knows what we're thinking due to his omniscience. So that's one mind, his mind, reading our mind by omniscience, uh, or otherwise knowing about it. In any case, uh, the method by which mind-to-mind communication works might be similar or different, but all of these would be examples of mind-to-mind communication and thus of telepathy. We have some more audio feedback, and I'll play that now. I just finished listening to your Harriet Tubman episode, and it was great work as usual. I wanted to let you know, um, I took a, a homeschool high school class um, on American history that my dad taught, but um, when you started singing John Brown's Body while I'm moldering in the grave, it brought me back to um, to those times with my dad and my friends and singing a song. Um, yeah, that was very heartwarming. So thank you for that. 
I also had a question. Um, you mentioned in the episode that Harriet Tubman would hold people up at gunpoint when they wanted to abandon their, you know, when they wanted to run away, but they stopped um, going. And she would say, come with us or die. And I was wondering what you thought the morality of that action was. My intuition is it would constitute a self-defense or defense of her, um, the people she was in, in charge of. But I just wanted to know your thoughts on whether that was a justified act of self-defense or if perhaps that was crossing a line. Um, thank you so much for the episodes. I enjoy them every week. Keep up the good work. So it is at least arguably the case that this would be uh, that her actions would be self-defense and also proxy self-defense on behalf of the other escapees. Uh, you know, if you threaten to use lethal force on someone who wants to turn back uh, by turning back, the person would become a danger to the escapees and the person who turns back thus could be considered an aggressor because now they're a danger. Um, and posing a danger to others is a form of aggression. So it uh, it could be justified to use it. It can be justified to use lethal force to stop an aggressor, whether that aggressor is a nice person or not has nothing to do with it. If they're putting you in danger, they're an aggressor. Um, whether it the use of lethal force would be justified in this particular circumstance is something I really can't assess because I I. I'm, I wasn't living back then. I don't know. Okay, so they are posing a danger to you by turning back, but how much danger? You know, if you're going to take someone's life, then it needs to be pretty serious danger. And whether they were posing that level of threat by turning back to the others is something that I don't have a way of assessing at present but I can see how the action is at least potentially justified. Our next feedback comes from Elizabeth Bauman via email, who writes, I just wanted to thank you for the episode on Harriet Tubman. When I was eight or nine, my aunt gave me an African doll, and I named her after Harriet Tubman. I still have her on my shelf. Now when I look at her, I imagine I'll think of the real Harriet biting a bullet through brain surgery. I'm pretty sure my jaw literally dropped when Jimmy told that part. Yeah, the good news is that we don't have pain receptor nerves in the brain itself, really. And so once you get through the skull, it, messing around <laughs> in your brain is not going to hurt so much. But getting through the skull is quite a challenge of its own. Oh, yeah. Uh, our next feedback comes from Ryan Cruz on Facebook, who writes, One of your best episodes. Also, the only time I have very much disagreed with you. You mentioned that Obama being elected is a proof that America has mostly overcome racism. Is this not a contradiction of what you also emphasized about Dr. King, that people should be judged based on their character rather than the color of their skin? How many people elected Obama based on the color of his skin as a proof of overcoming racism? Obama was the catalyst of this progressive tribalism causing so much dysfunction in society. It has gotten so bad that Joe Biden said, if you don't vote Democrat, you're not black. I wish I knew a word for this type of play where the virtue is a veneer covering up a lie. In this case, the virtue is upholding everyone the with the is, same. Th the word is hypocrisy. <laughs> right. <laughs> In this case, the virtue is upholding everyone with the same dignity. The lie is tribal tribalism, guilt and obtaining political power. Keep up the good work, Jimmy. I'm a huge fan. Well, thank you very much, Ryan. Um, I, I never expect people to agree with me. I only ask for a sympathetic hearing. 
Um, I would I wouldn't view Obama as the catalyst for the current polarization and tribalism. He may have contributed to it, but it goes back a long way. Um, there was, for example, lots of polarization and tribalism during the George W. Bush presidency and before that in the Richard Nixon presidency, to just cite two examples. Um, in saying that America has overcome a great deal of racism that used to exist, I'm not denying that there are some people who voted for Obama because of his ethnic heritage as a form of virtue signaling to prove to others that they're not racist. Um, however, anti-Black racism has been overcome to the point that it is now possible to elect a Black man as president, and it's actually happened. So that would not have been the case. It would not have been possible before a certain point in American history. And so despite all of our problems today and despite the trajectory that you that we may see with increasing you know, polarization and so forth. That's still progress. Killian Miller wrote a comment on YouTube. There's an interesting idea that slavery was not caused by racism, but racism was caused by slavery. Racism was never really a term until the early 20th century, I think. It is common in human history to view your own group favorably and other groups unfavorably, especially in wartime. Most of the time, this manifests in nationality rather than race specifically, because race is immutable, but you can somewhat be blamed for your allegiance to your nation or creed. Now, when Africans were being sold into slavery and made to work as second-class citizens in North America, the Americans had to find some way to justify what they were systematically doing to a group of people who didn't look like them, and so they drew lines of superiority and inferiority with race. Then children grow up only knowing what they see, which is a race-based hierarchy, and thus racism is born. So you're definitely right that the term racism is of very recent origin. Um, it, um, it apparently originated in the early 20th century. It was coined by 1928, which is our, apparently our first surviving uh, record of it, and it was in general use by 1935. So this is a very recent term. Um, the reality, though, goes back farther, and American racism was definitely caused by slavery, um, not the other way around. The Africans who were enslaved were enslaved because they were available, and they were available because they were first caught by other Africans and then sold to people of European descent. So I agree that American racism largely developed as a form of self-justification or the practice of slavery, and later maintaining African-Americans in a second-class uh, status. Jimmy, I just want to clarify something you just said, because it seems like you said two different things. Okay. You said American racism was definitely caused by slavery, or at least that's what I heard. Yep. Could you? So definitely was caused by slavery. Correct. Okay. Yeah, it, just... it, it, it was not people, Amer Americans hated black people, and therefore they enslaved them. They enslaved them and therefore came to look down on African okay. Americans. Great. I wanted to make sure that was very clear because it's a this is an important topic. All right. Uh, next is Tony L on YouTube who writes, Tubman deserves respect for her faith and courage, though pointing a firearm at someone abandoning the escape seems morally questionable, but perhaps understandable and defensible. 
An armed Tubman on the $20 bill would be awesome, but will never happen, unfortunately. I learned much of what you said about slavery in my youth from reading Dinesh D'Souza's The End of Racism. Thomas Sowell is a national treasure who deserves more fame and respect. Despite some good speeches, the figures of MLK and Lincoln are more complex and problematic than most people know or are willing to admit publicly. So, um, yeah, all human beings are complex and flawed, including the ones you mentioned, like Martin Luther King and Abraham Lincoln. Um, one of the things I try to do on Mysterious World is look at people sympathetically, but realistically, without trying to ignore their flaws or uncritically lionize them as heroes. Um, another deeply flawed individual that we've talked about was President uh, John F. Kennedy. Uh, I'm willing to credit him with what he did during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but that doesn't mean I'd excuse his womanizing or portray him as the greatest thing ever. So our next grouping of feedback comes from episode 212 on the mystery of bilocation, and the first feedback is an audio from Deacon Bill. This is Deacon Bill Williams, MD, and I uh, was very interested in your um, recent episode on bilocation, and I thought there was an additional possibility for physical bilocation, um, which is coming out of uh, string theory, namely that in string theory, there's a potential for a second dimension of time. So it's possible that an individual could translate um, in a second dimension of time while holding the first dimension steady. In other words, at eight o'clock, they would freeze 8 o'clock and then move to uh, 801 in a different time dimension, and in that second dimension of time also move spatially to a different location, although it would seem like they were moving at super speed and nobody would see it because time dimension 1 is frozen. And then they could proceed forward in both time dimensions or actually in the first time dimension uh, in the two different locations. So I thought that that was a possibility. Uh, and then, of course, they could jump back, um, you know, based on uh, canceling out that uh, second dimensional translation. And I thought that was another interesting possibility that I'd like you to comment on. I love your program. I listen to every single one. God bless you and keep up the good work. Well, thank you very much, Deacon Bill. Um, it is possible that having more than one dimension of time could produce the effect of actual physical bilocation. Um, however, I'd have a few notes of caution about uh, this as an explanation for the existing cases like Padre Pio's. Um, first, we don't have evidence that this in particular is what's happening in the cases at hand. Padre Pio's seemed to be um, more visionary. But um, a second concern is of a scientific nature. So in string theory, it's true. It does postulate additional dimensions both spatial and temporal, um, but the additional dimensions that we don't perceive are thought to be rolled up infinitesimally microscopically small, which is why we don't notice them, like length, breadth, and width, and ordinary time. Those are spread out. We see and observe those, but these other dimensions are supposed to be rolled up really fine so we don't notice them. It could be hard to get a full-sized human body to move through such a microscopic dimension, like a time dimension, although maybe not if we're really, really thin along the time axis. Um, also, it should be pointed out that string theory has started to fall on hard times. Um, it was really popular 
in the 90s and early 2000s, but um, it has a lack of um, having had successful testable predictions. Uh, a lot of the predictions it did make, like for the superconducting super collider, didn't pan out. Uh, they said, we're going to turn this thing on and we're going to see uh, supersymmetric particles or sparticles everywhere, and then there were none. Um, and a lot of the other predictions of string theory are um, are are untestable and untestable for the foreseeable future. So people have started to move away from string theory, but it's still a very interesting idea you propose. Next comes from patron Fabian, who writes, having listened to your podcasts on remote viewing and bilocation, I was wondering what your thoughts are on Catholics researching and trying how to proactively initiate an out-of-body experience. Could this be spiritually dangerous? Well, research involves risks, uh, but I wouldn't eliminate. So, you know, there's with almost any form of research, there's some form of risk. Um, but I wouldn't eliminate something just because it might involve risk. I mean, going out into the woods to study wildlife involves risk, since some wildlife can be dangerous, but that doesn't mean we should never go out into the woods. Um, when we look at what people who have who regularly experience OBEs and who consciously induce them um, report, they say, well, they don't really have significantly dangerous experiences as a result. Um, it's also believed by a significant number of OBE researchers that uh, nothing actually leaves your body. It's just a shift of perspective. Um, I know a, a British uh, OBE or who I took a class from um, who uh, who is very much of the opinion. He, he really doesn't think anything is leaving your body. And it's just you're, you're remotely perceiving another location. But we will be talking about OBEs in the future, and as long as you have OBEers uh, saying, you know, nothing really dangerous happens here, and I, I don't see a reason why one would say this cannot be investigated. <laughs> Tristan McDonald writes on Facebook, this is one of the most thought-provoking episodes the podcast has produced, and that's high praise considering the quality of the previous episodes. I think there might be a connection to angels here, because they are incorporeal. They move between locations instantaneously by just focusing their thoughts elsewhere. Because the human soul is likewise immaterial by nature, maybe that explains bilocation, which would thus be a natural phenomenon. If we can, like remote viewers, somehow focus our minds off our bodies and somewhere else, maybe that can allow our spirits to travel elsewhere. This would require us to actually focus on the place instead of some imagined representation of it, since the imagination, unlike the intellect, is a bodily faculty, according to Thomism. And if our mind stays focused on the body, as it is by default, it stays in that location. I'm not sure exactly how that would work since we tend to conflate thinking about a place with imagining it. Anyway, fascinating episode. Uh, so thank you. And yes, there is a similarity to how angels move and to remote viewing. If the intellectual soul left the body, of course, it would die since it's what's keeping it alive. So if anything leaves the body, it wouldn't be the intellectual soul. However, as mentioned, a lot of OBE researchers don't think that anything leaves the body, and we'll be talking about that more in a future episode.
Catherine M writes via email. I listened to the episode on bilocation and you talked about how all of our soul is present in every part of our bodies. When someone loses a limb, they can, they can experience phantom pain, which doctors originally thought was psychological. Later, they found that it does cause true pain. So could phantom pain be due to the fact that a limb, which has your soul encompassing it, is not there? Thank you for helping me out. It's an interesting speculation. The standard theological opinion would be that the soul does not extend beyond the body, and so it would not be present in a phantom limb. Um, neither would a phantom limb have nociceptors or pain nerves, and so they would not be responsible for phantom limb pain. Presumably, then, uh, the, the phantom limb pain would be caused by something inside the brain or inside the nervous system of the body, like maybe where the, the, the pain receptors got cut off where the limb did. They might still be firing at that terminus and sending pain signals back to the brain but it would presumably be something in the body rather than uh, something outside of the body causing the phantom limb pain. Our next uh, comment is an email. It says, my name is Dan and I'm a newcomer to Jimmy Akin's mysterious world. I really enjoy the podcast. I just happened upon a Facebook post, which stated several pilots of British and American aviation of various nationalities and different religions who during the second world war were to carry out missions in Italian territory where witnesses were seeing in the sky a monk who was forbidding them to drop bombs on the site. In the area where Padre Pio lived, never a bomb fell. A direct witness to this fact was the general of the Italian aviation, Bernardo Rossini, who at the time was part of the air unit command together with the Allied forces. Both him and his pilots had seen the monk figure in the sky with their hands raised the bombs then dropped themselves and fell in a forest, and planes came back without any pilot intervention. Hearing that there was a brother with stigmata considered holy by the community, the general thought that maybe it was the monk seen in heaven and decided to go see him as soon as possible. When the war ended, this is the first thing he did. Accompanied by some pilots, he went to Padre Pio's convent, and having crossed the threshold, he was in front of several people among which he immediately recognized the one who had stopped his planes. Padre Pio came closer and putting a hand on his shoulder said, so was it you who wanted to kill us all? The two made friends and the general who was Protestant converted to Catholicism. End quote. When I read that, I thought, wow, maybe Jimmy could do a show on Padre Pio with this story and some of the many other miracles surrounding this saint. I have heard this story. Uh, I haven't had a chance to research it in detail yet, but we will have a future episode that focuses specifically on Padre Pio. And glad you like the show. And if I could add, our friends at American Catholic History did an episode of their show on this very topic, on Padre Pio and his interventions with American servicemen in various theaters of World War II. Uh, and they talk about this too. Also, some of the details that they gave were a little different, but uh, very similar. And that's one of the things I try to do is in doing a show, I try to get the best account of the details I can. Of course. Uh, the next comment comes from Modest You on YouTube, who writes, interesting episode. One more biblical instance of a kind of bilocation comes to mind. In Second Kings 526, when Gehazi comes back to Elisha, Elisha says that his spirit was with him when he went to Naaman to get some silver for himself. 
So, yeah, this is a very interesting experience. And I know, like in the New American Bible, it says, did not my soul go with you? But actually, what Elijah says in Hebrew is, did not my heart go with you? And that would be consistent with the effects of both an out-of-body experience or simply a remote viewing experience. Um, But one way or another, Elisha had knowledge and perception of what his servant Gehazi was doing in his absence. And uh, incidentally, I, I keep a list of events in the Bible where paranormal effects like this happen, uh, and that's on the list, um, along with a bunch of others. So I, I keep this list of paranormal effects in the Bible, regardless of whether these effects are caused by God directly or through secondary causes he built into us. Our next feedback comes uh, is a voicemail from Ryan from Indiana. Hi, this is Ryan from Indiana, Dom and Jimmy. I just want to say that uh, the Mysterious World podcast is fantastic. Faithful listener, love to go back and listen to the episodes. Uh, my question is regarding the bilocation episode. Um, Padre Pio heard a confession in 1922 by Giovanna at St. Peter's. My curiosity is, do you think that was a valid confession? I, I assume it was. Otherwise, uh, the St. Padre Pio probably wouldn't have heard it. Uh, but I'd like your thought on that. Thanks for the great work you do. You definitely help listeners think about other issues in life and the world in a, in a logical and reasonable way. Thanks so much. God bless. Oh, well, thank you very much. It's an interesting question. And before we try to answer it about the confession's validity, let's hear another listener's perspective as well. Yes, that's from Grant Stevens, who wrote on YouTube, if the story about Padre Pio bilocating and hearing a confession is true, we could deduce that he was physically at both locations, or at least he was physically at the confessional. If this bilocation was a gift from or act of God, and a priest must be physically present to hear a confession, no telephone confessions, and God wouldn't trick Padre Pio into hearing a confession that wouldn't be valid, then it would be reasonable to assume that God would have made Padre Pio physically be in the confessional. Essentially, at least in this case, if the story is true, then it wouldn't be some sort of psi ability or hallucination. Actually, um... This wouldn't rule out a psi since one reported and apparently rare ability is known as apportation. Apportation involves the sudden movement of a physical object from one place to another, even through other physical objects. So hypothetically, Padre Pio could have apported to St. Peter's Basilica and then apported back to his monastery. But Let's suppose that this wasn't apportation, but by location. Uh, the argument you pose, uh, Grant, is valid, but it depends on the premise that priests must be physically present to hear confessions. This is a common theological opinion, but it is not established by church teaching, and I'm aware of theologians who have the contrary opinion. Uh, for example, the moral and pastoral theologian Henry Davis back in the 1930s, was of the view that—so this is pre-Vatican II and everything—he was of the view that it was possible, in principle, to do a confession over the telephone. I also know that when the COVID lockdown started in 2020, 
there were similarly priests who were of the opinion that it was possible and even were willing to do confessions over the telephone, although you're taking a big risk if you're going to do that, given all of the privacy concerns and electronic eavesdropping these days. I mean, do you really want the NSA knowing all of your sins? Um, in any event, um, we also have another sacrament. So confession is a sacrament based on information exchange. You know, you're telling the priest your sins and that you're sorry. He's telling you information back. That's the matter of the sacrament is this information. So we also have another information-based sacrament, which is matrimony, where the parties express their matrimonial consent to, you know, I take you as my wife, I take you as my husband. They exchange their matrimonial consent, and that's the matter of the sacrament. But the church, church law, explicitly allows matrimony to be conducted at a distance. This happens when two people exchange their matrimonial consent through proxies. And so if you can have one information-based sacrament um, happening uh, at a distance without physical presence, hypothetically, you could have another uh, information-based sacrament happening um, at a distance without personal presence. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't look at the... Uh, at Padre Pio's uh, bilocation confession as requiring his physical presence, I would tend to think that, you know, this is an information-based sacrament. He's getting the information. He's genuinely talking to the person. Um, I wouldn't see why it would have to be invalid because I, I don't see the necessity. I mean, if the church rules and says, yeah, it is necessary to have physical presence, I'd, I'd of course accept that. But at the, at, current state of my thought. This seems to be an information-based sacrament. The other one we know about can occur without physical presence, and so I would tend to assume hypothetically the same is true here. And then we have a comment from Rob, our mysterious feedback coordinator, who asks, doesn't Padre Pio stating that he heard her confession technically break the seal of the confessional? Actually, no, uh, because breaking the seal requires two things. It involves both revealing the penitent and what they confessed. So Padre Pio only acknowledged to the girl that she had been to him for confession, and that doesn't break the seal. It doesn't reveal to any anybody else what who it was and what they did. Uh, there are some delicate areas in allowing other people to know about this, but as long as he didn't reveal to a third party who she was and what she confessed, the seal would not be broken. So our last bit of feedback comes from episodes uh, 212A, which is our second mysterious feedback episode. And this comes again. I know all the way down. And this comes from Jude Peterson on YouTube, who writes plot twist. Remote viewers of Jesus just see a consecrated Eucharistic host. Well, Jude, you may be interested in this brief clip from this summer's International Remote Viewing Association Conference, uh, which I went to. In it, one of the original Stargate viewers, um, Lynn Buchanan, describes the remote viewing experience that he says had the biggest impact on his life. It was a practice session that he did back in the 1980s, and he remembers uh, that his monitor for the session was Major Bill Ray, who we interviewed on Mysterious World back in episodes 190 and 191. 
Here is what Lynn had to say about the remote viewing experience that changed his life the most. Probably the one that changed my life most. Um, it was a practice session, as I remember, which may be faulty. Uh, Bill Ray was my monitor. And uh, he gave me a uh, basically a personality assessment type uh, thing where you assess a person's personality. And uh, in this uh, session, I started getting, I was expecting a bad guy, you know, Idi Amin or something like that. And in this session, I realized this, this guy isn't one of the bad guys. You know, this is a good guy. And I kept on and on and on. And I think my entire uh, summary for that session was whatever evil you think this guy did, he didn't do it. And in that session, I had that what I call perfect side integration. Um, and uh, I was standing right in front of this guy. And he was looked like a little Jewish guy to me. He was in a modern business suit. And uh, he never spoke to me, but he looked around at me, saw me there, which is totally unusual in CRV. And uh, he gave me this smile that just told me, hey, I accept you, you're here, you know, and all, all that. And, uh, and all of a sudden I knew that whoever this guy was, Whatever I had done bad, he'd seen worse. Whatever I'd done good, he's seen better. But he just accepted me as being there, you know, he just accepted me. And uh, so I came out of the session and uh, I asked my monitor, you know, I said, whatever evil you think this guy did, he didn't do it. And uh, he opened the envelope, and our uh, director had hand-scribbled on a piece of paper, Jesus. And uh, what I realized is, from that session, whatever evil I've done, he's seen worse. Whatever good I've done, he's seen better. But he accepted me. And that changed my life. So Lynn saw Jesus, although he didn't know that it was Jesus he was viewing because he didn't know the target. He was blind to the target. Uh, he perceived him as a Jewish man dressed in modern attire. He sensed and was convinced that he was a good and innocent person. Uh, he felt that he was accepted by Jesus. And upon learning who the target was and that it was Jesus he was viewing, he said it changed his life. And that's a nice note to end on. It certainly is. That is an awesome story. So that's it from us. You too can send in your mysterious feedback on any of the topics we've covered. Let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, or join our StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. Or you can call our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to add two things about that. First, when you call, 
please leave your name. We would love to be able to credit you and say, hey, this is Joe from wherever. So please or leave your name. If you don't want to give your real name, make one up. Yes, right. Or tell us that you'd rather not, you'd rather be anonymous. That's that's fine too. And we'll leave your name out. Uh, second is we also take videos. So you can email a video to us and we'd, we'd love to play your video on a future feedback as well. Uh, so what's Jimmy- What's the address for that, Dom? The address is mysterious at sqpn.com. Okay. Also, while, uh, it, uh, you know, check out the video version. Speaking of video, check out the video version of the show at my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. And while you're there, I am trying to grow my channel, so I'd really appreciate it if you uh, subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you always get notified whenever I have a new video, whether it's Mysterious World or something else. Um, we are over 30,000 subscribers now. We're trying to make our way to 50,000, and we'll get there if you help us out and subscribe. Excellent. You'll find Jimmy's resources from all of our discussions on our website, but you can find the show notes from this episode at mysterious.fm slash 232A. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. Quest.